by the Numbers Basketball. I am your host, Jacob Birkinshaw. Welcome to part two of our ongoing series, looking at the greatest teams of all time. Today, we're going to be looking at everything from the post-merger era, starting in 1977, all the way until Jordan's last retirement in 1998. So we're going to be looking at the Showtime Lakers, the Bird Celtics, the Detroit Pistons, and of course, the Chicago Bulls. Let's get into it. Right, before we begin, for everyone who just wants to watch the world burn and has decided to start an ongoing series at part two, please go back and listen to part one, where I explain the methodology for this whole experiment, the whole series that we're going through we are using plus minus data exclusively to rank these teams. I'm going to be talking about them in their percentiles to keep the numbers from getting too abstract. So I'm going to say someone is the 86th percentile of teams of all time, the 96th percentile, the 70th percentile, etc. So it gets it's less abstract for you guys who don't have all the plus minus data in front of you, but you can't quickly cross-reference it. You can just say, right, I know they're in the top 20% in defense, offense, overall, whatever. We're not going to be looking at win-loss records. If you don't know why, go listen to part one. Basically, I don't think they're the most indicative way to look at a team's quality. We're not going to be talking about championships. Obviously, most of these teams will have won championships. That's a given because usually the best team wins, but it's not always the case. We are going to have some teams here again that don't win the championship. We're going to have a team here that doesn't even make the finals. See, that's going to be later. So it's just plus minus data using... My formula, plus minus, which incorporates playoffs, regular season, era adjustments, some extra little factors in there. It's all in part one. Go back and listen. Some handsome Englishman explained it for 20 minutes. And if you've never heard any of these concepts, it might offer some perspectives on how to analyze team basketball, how to analyze kind of team quality that maybe you'll find interesting. If you're listening to this and you haven't turned it off, you probably would find it interesting. So if you haven't, please go back and check that episode. Now, there is a problem here. And the problem is Michael Jordan shaped. I obviously, I'm not doing this by decades. I'm doing this by eras. The reason why I'm doing this by eras is because in one decade, maybe like the 90s with the Bulls, 60s with the Celtics, 2010s with the Golden State Warriors, if I did a top 10 in a decade, I would have to talk about four, five, six of the same team, you know, one after another, and it would there'd be redundancy. So I split up the 65 years of NBA history that I have catalogued into three distinct eras. The eras before the merger, 1955 to 76, after the merger, 77 until 98, and the modern era, 99 to now. I did that, like I said, because of redundancy. Unfortunately, all six of Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls championship teams still made the top 10 of this list from 1977 until 1998. 
even going up against the LA Lakers, the Showtime Lakers, the Bird Celtics, everything in the 80s, everything in the late 70s, all the other teams in the 90s, all six championship teams from Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls are in the top 10. So there's still going to be some redundancy, which is why I've also chosen to do a top 10. Because as you'll see, if I did a top five, that would be even worse. So we're going to have to move relatively brisk. I don't want to spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes on each team like I did last time when I was only doing a top five, top six, and I could really dive deep into some of these teams. And it was more of a history lesson. A lot of you guys know a lot about these teams already. It's more seeing how they stack up in this historical context right now. But first, before we dive into that top 10, I want to take a little time to mention the teams that came 11th and 12th. In 12th place, the Philadelphia 76ers in 1983. The faux, faux, faux 76ers. If you don't know, that is when in the late 70s, early 80s, Dr. J, Julius Irving, had a wonderful team around him in Philly. He had what Bobby Jones, uh, Maurice Cheeks. He had Andrew Tony. He had a very, very good team around him. But they were a team that could never quite make it over the hump. In, what, 77, 80, and 82, they made it to the finals and got beaten by the Trailblazers and then the Lakers twice. So Dr. J wasn't having the most luck. In there, he won an MVP, made three finals, was, you know, maybe the face of the league because Kareem is quite a stoic personality. Dr. J is more that kind of disco flair vibe, you know, jump from the free throw line, dunks, you know, of kind of a proto MJ in some regards. The type of guy you would build, not a franchise, not, you know, a team around, the type of guy you could build an entire league around. That's the kind of guy Dr. J was. I didn't actually make up that line. Kenny Smith said that, and I thought it was a great line, and I just thought I'd repeat it here. But he couldn't make make that leap into being a championship team by himself. So in 1982, after the 1982 season, heading into 1983, they sign Moses Malone. And Moses Malone is, at this point, I think he's a two-time MVP. I think, actually, Dr. J wins it the year before. And then Moses Malone, in the year he goes to Philly in 83, wins the MVP again. He wins finals MVP. They storm through the playoffs. I think they actually, they don't go fo fo fo. They go fo 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 one. So they actually do lose a game. But they are great on both ends. And it's tough to say, because when I first started this, when I, if you had asked me, you know, back a, a year or so ago, before I'd done any of this, just write down who the greatest teams of all time are. Within the top 20, for sure, I would have said the 83-76ers. And they are great. Here they are in my plus minus model. They're the 37th best team of all time, which is amazing. That is a strong, strong championship team in any season, any era, if I break them down by percentiles, I can say they're final plus minus. They are in the 93rd percentile offensively. They're in the 95th percentile defensively. And overall, in the 97th percentile of teams ever. 37th overall. Their final plus minus is plus 
which is amazing. Plus five would get you into top 100 teams ever. You know, six would get you into about top 50 teams ever, maybe like plus 6.1, 6.2. Plus seven, you're looking at, you know, closer to a top 30 team ever. Plus eight, top 20 team ever. Plus nine, you're talking about top five team ever. So they're a very, very strong team. They're combining two MVPs and they just crush the NBA that year. They just absolutely crush it. And it's telling that they still only come 12th. That just tells you the quality of teams. And they're the 37th best team ever. They are 12th best team of this era. In 11th, we have the Detroit Pistons in 1989. The best Pistons team ever. The best Pistons team of this Isaiah Thomas era. Their numbers are actually almost identical. They're slightly, if I had to nitpick, they are slightly worse on offense, but slightly better on defense than the 83-76ers. But their offense is also in the 93rd percentile. Defense is in the 95th percentile. Overall, they are 97th percentile. Plus 6.9 and they are the 36th best team ever. So these teams are right next to each other. The only difference is because I've got I've reduced the plus minus to one decimal point, it looks like they're the same at plus 6.9. They're not the same if I expanded it out, you know, a digit or so more, we would see that the Detroit Pistons in 1989 have a very slight edge. The problem is though, they have a very slight edge they're also completely different in terms of the top-down view of how they're built. They don't have any MVPs. They are the bad boys, obviously. They are the team that is greater than the sum of their parts, which is a running theme, I think, for the best Detroit teams of this era, of the future eras that they would come to win championships in. They are greater than the sum of their parts. We're talking Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumas, Mark Aguirre, who was traded for, they traded for him by getting rid of Adrian Dantley. So they kind of, they traded one scoring wing for another scoring wing that maybe, as far as I can tell, it was to do with Isaiah Thomas and kind of egos within the team that they got rid of Adrian Dantley, who is pretty objectively a better player than Mark Aguirre. But maybe in this kind of winning situation where you need to take on a lesser role, egos got in the way. They probably felt Mark Aguirre gave them what they needed without damaging chemistry too much. I think that's why that happened. They had Vinnie Johnson, the microwave off the bench. They had the incredibly hated but very underrated Bill Lambier, a great center. I think I will at some point he will feature in one of these episodes. And if you don't know how good Bill Lambier is, you're going to be shocked. I was shocked at how good Bill Lambier is. He's not obviously, we're not talking top 10, top 20 center of all time, but you get further down than that and you start having to consider him in those discussions, seriously. And you have obviously Dennis Rodman, who would go on to be back-to-back Defensive Player of the Year in 1990 and 1991, a wonderful defender. I don't think he's that much tangibly worse in 1989. I think he is still realistically a defensive player of the year level player. I don't think, to be honest, Dennis Rodman was that fully impactful on defense the way some people do. I think he is 
obviously an all-defensive player, all-defensive first-teamer. But I think in 1990, in this this era, you have guys like Hakeem, you have, you know, David Robinson's coming into the league, you have Patrick Ewing. I don't think Dennis Rodman is Defensive Player of the Year, but I do think he is first-team, all-defense caliber. So you have him as well, and... He, even though he's 27, he's still considered one of the youngsters on the team. He's the same age as Isaiah Thomas, for fuck's sake, but that doesn't matter. We won't get into that. But they are, they're built from this very solid core, which is, as I said, greater than some of their parts. A fun fact for you guys, in the last 40 years, basically, there are only three ways to win a title. You either have an MVP, a past, present, or future MVP, I only say future because in 81, the Celtics had Larry Bird who had yet to win an MVP, but would go on to do. I believe in all other seasons in the last 40 years, it has been a current or past MVP, not a future one. So have an MVP or have Kawhi Leonard, who threw some wrinkle in kind of historical context, will probably never win an MVP, but is... 100% an MVP level player. Pete Kawhi is absolutely MVP level. He he just won't ever win an MVP. And we know why. We know load management. We know saving himself for the playoffs. He's never going to go for that title. And if you don't really push yourself in the regular season, you're not going to claim MVP because it is a regular season award. But have an MVP, have Kawhi, or be the Detroit Pistons. Detroit Pistons this year didn't have an MVP. 1990 did not have an MVP. 2004 absolutely did not have an MVP. They have Defensive Players of the Year, I'll give you, in 89-90. They have future and then current Defensive Player of the Year, Dennis Rodman. In 2004, they have Ben Wallace, who is, I think, either a three- or four-time Defensive Player of the Year. But never that, which is, I think, quite... Uh, it's quite telling to how Detroit sees itself and the reputation Detroit has that there's never been an MVP in their championship teams. That's that's pretty amazing. But the reason why, actually, I wanted to talk about these two teams because if I don't mention these two teams, I'm sure they're going to come up, the Detroit Pistons and the Fo 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 Sixers. And I just wanted to do a little bit on them because they were 11th and 12th They're very, very good. Like I said, 37th and 36th best team of all time, respectively. Very, very good teams, but they don't crack the top 10. Let's get into that top 10 now, actually. So, number one, well, number one in top 10. 10th place, 1993 Chicago Bulls. The worst Bulls team Michael Jordan is ever, ever on that wins a championship. In the regular season, their percentiles are 93rd percentile on offense, 74th percentile on defense, overall 91st percentile, which is, it's strong, but for the Chicago Bulls and for a team in this discussion, quite weak. I mean, you heard with those other teams, we're talking final plus minus data is looking more like, you know, 95th percentiles. 
once we get into final percentiles with the Chicago Bulls team is where we begin to see it pick up. Final offense, 98th percentile. Defense, 81st percentile. Still not great, but we're getting better. Final plus minus, plus 7.1, 31st best team ever. The worst championship team Michael Jordan was on is the 31st best team ever. And why do I think this is the worst team Michael Jordan was on? It comes down to that defense. Those teams, honestly, and I think Steve Kerr's touched on this before, when in response to people saying, oh, if Jordan hadn't retired in 93, maybe you could go on to win in 94, 95. You could have won eight straight. Absolutely not. If they had, If Jordan hadn't retired in 93... I think it's basically impossible that he he might win another three. He might. He would definitely not win 96, 97, 98. He would definitely not three-peat again. There's there's no way. It's just by that time, because 91 is a juggernaut, 92 is a juggernaut, 93, they are still the best team in the league by quite a way, but they are not trying on defense the way they were because it's hard. It's really hard. LeBron makes it look easy in this past decade for playing 100 games every year, coming back, playing another 100 games. It's really fucking difficult to play all the way into July, playing real intense basketball in June, July. Then you get, what, a month to decompress then you're back into training camps, getting ready for any um, the next season. And even then, if there is the Olympics on, like there were in 1992, where finally, you know, Jordan and Scotty are going, they had no time really at all. From like, what, October 1991 through until like June 1993, Jordan has basically just continuously played basketball. So Scotty, they haven't had a break. I think that's actually a bit of an underplayed part of the first retirement and why this team in 93 is kind of, they're holding on, they beat the Suns. All finals series are very difficult, but they beat the Suns quite handedly for a final series. It goes to six, but it's not like in 92 against the Portland Trailblazers, that was a real six-game series. I don't think this Suns series is a real six-game series, honestly. But this 93 team, they still have really good players. They still have, you know, Paxson. They still have Scotty, obviously. Scotty is really rounded into form as that kind of secondary role, but he's a top 10 player in the league. Horace Grant is not at the level he was in 1992, but he's still really underrated. I mean, if I wanted to round his stat line, we're talking 13, 10, and 3 which sounds pedestrian, but you're talking about an all-round power forward, big man player that really, really was connective tissue for this team. I think they really missed him actually later, but obviously by that point, the league had died down in terms of quality towards the latter half of the 90s. The league wasn't what it was earlier on and Rodman was still Dennis fucking Rodman. So they didn't miss it as much. But I think Horace Grant is a fantastic player, really underrated in that first three-peat. And in 93, he is still an excellent player. They have BJ Armstrong, who 
with his little fucking cherub face who's he's he's you know he's no ron harper but he'll do he's he's fine honestly they still have old man bill cartwright who was very important i think in terms of again like horace grant he's connective tissue for this team he has a steadying presence he plays a more kind of mature version of what luke longley would play in the later teams Although I think Longley, because of, you know, not being quite as old and rickety as Bill Cartwright, maybe provided more value. It's, you know, it's tough to say. But then with the guys like John Paxson, who, weirdly, John Paxson, right? This is so fucking stupid. John Paxson shot 46% on threes that season, and he shot less than one a game. Imagine this team today. You have... BJ Armstrong shot 45% on two th- less than two threes. Imagine this team today where you have 40% shooters in Paxson and Armstrong around Scotty and Jordan and Horace Grant playing the small ball five. And, you know, Scotty would probably slide up to four. Jordan would play that three role. And then you'd have Paxson and Armstrong in kind of backcourt. But really, I mean, Jordan would be guarding the hardest backcourt assignment. They'd be probably be sticking, you know, BJ and Paxson on the weakest offensive players. It's a real modern team for a team in 1993. But we are still talking the worst Chicago Bulls title team quite comfortably as well. I mean, you'll see once we get through to the later teams how much worse this team is than all the other title teams. And it is still the 10th best team of its era, the 31st best team of all time. Wildly good. Again, those final plus minus data points, final offensive rate uh, percentile, 98th percentile, final defensive percentile, 81st percentile, plus minus, plus 7.1. So again, plus seven, we're talking about like 30th level best team ever, actually 31st in this case. Number nine, this one shocked me. Ninth best team of the era, the Utah Jazz, but not the finals ones, the Utah Jazz in 1996. Not the finals teams, the teams before the finals. Regular season, offensive data, 94th percentile, regular season defensive percentile, 70th percentile, not a great defensive team in the regular season, overall 91st percentile. In terms of final plus minus data, offensively 95th percentile ever, defensively 93rd percentile ever, overall 98th percentile ever, plus 7.2 and the 28th best team ever in my book. So how the hell did not only a Utah Jazz team make this top 10 ahead of, you know, Showtime Lakers teams, Bird Celtics teams, Detroit Pistons, the 76ers and 83, and this team didn't even make the finals. They lost in seven games in the conference finals to the Seattle Supersonics. The best way I can describe this team is they, in the playoffs, they blew teams out but it took them seven games. They were consistently crushing teams in plus minus data in series, but they were 
taken these stupid, you know, 98 to 95 losses. And then the next game, they would blow them out 122 to 93. Like, it's it's ridiculous. Like, they weren't consistent, but you start adding up the totality of these series versus these teams and the quality of teams they're facing because that 90s Western Conference was wildly good at the conference level. I don't think any of those teams, apart from, like, these Utah Jazz teams, I think in the late 90s, maybe the Trailblazers earlier on, the Rockets in that kind of little run with Hakeem in between the, the three-peats. None of them were really strong championship level, but they were all good, good teams. And to get through the, the Western Conference in the 90s is underrated achievement. And yeah, they just they they, they outscored the Seattle Supersonics lost in seven games. They should have gone to the finals. We should have been talking about the trilogy of finals against the Chicago Bulls. I don't think they would have beaten the 96 team either, the same way they did not in 97 or 98. But they were still a very good team, and I think that's probably the best. The thing is as well, their playoff defensive rating is so good. They were shutting these teams down in the playoffs and offensively in they pick up Jeff Hornacek in I think 1994 their offensive rating just starts to climb and Cole Malone is I think he's the real driving force behind this team but as we'll see in teams up and down history you don't have to be the best player to be the most additive player I think Jeff Hornacek unlocks more out of this offense he turns the offense from just being John Stockton Carl Malone pick and rolls he adds a new wrinkle he adds this incredibly good scorer at the two guard position a real underrated player I think of the era since then you know what he's gone on to like weird Fox News stuff you know I'm not going to talk about post career but just want to flag that up that there he really unlocked this Utah Jazz team in this kind of 94 to 98 run 96 is the peak of that team and the thing is they play so many playoff games and this plus minus data weighs those playoff games more heavily than um regular season data and it it doesn't work kind of straight up like i said it's like a 60 to 40 split in the first episode this utah jazz team it kind of takes advantage of that by having these long series, but they're long series where they are just blowing teams out of the water. Like it's a really anomalous year, but this team is awesome. And the fact they didn't make the finals is a bit unfortunate because I think they could have, this team I think was probably the best of the Utah jazz in that era. And I think they could have given the bulls the best run for their money. It wasn't meant to be, Sonics got through them in seven games in the conference finals. They still end up the ninth best team of this era, plus 7.2, 98th percentile ever, 28th best team of all time in my book. Right, eighth best team of this era, the 1985 LA Lakers, the start of showtime. We're finally getting to some teams that you might have more expected on this list. We're finally getting those magic teams going. Let's have a look at it. Regular season offensive data, 96th percentile ever, 
regular season defense, 63rd percentile ever. Still above average, but for this context, in in this class of teams, we are talking about a dogged defensive team, not a great one. Overall, 93rd percentile regular season ever. Their final plus minus data, offensively, 99th percentile ever. That's right, 99th percentile ever, a top 10 offense of all time from the 1985 LA Lakers. Defensively, 80th percentile ever. So we see them climbing up. They are still, for this context, within this company, they're not a great defensive team. These Lakers teams were never great defensive teams, and that's kind of what holds them back in the very top, top discussions ever. Still, plus 7.5, 98th percentile ever, the 22nd best team of all time. I have the 1985 LA Lakers. And I actually wanted to look a little bit into the whole Showtime thing. The whole, you know, I always have this impression of Showtime as this fast-paced team that really they go on the break, they play quickly, they play with flash, they play with finesse, and they were just blowing teams out. And it's true on offense, they were blowing teams out. They were a top 10 offense of all time. And they consistently took what was a very high level regular season offensive team, like I said, 96th percentile ever. And they would just jack that up in the playoffs to, you know, 99th percentile ever. I mean, we're talking, they jump from, they're about plus six regular season offense. They jump up to about a plus 10 playoff offense. And they do this constantly. They are constantly jumping from like a very, very good regular season offense to an all-time level playoff offense. But this whole Showtime transition, fast break thing, you know, you see the highlights of Magic running down three on one, three on two, making this an incredible no-look pass. Obviously, that was happening a lot. But... When I look at the pace data, kind of trying to really see, right, are they just running teams off the floor? And they're not, actually. They are playing quicker than average, but they're very rarely, like if the average game is like 102, pace has 102 possessions, they're maybe playing at 103. If the average is 101, they're maybe playing at 102. Like they're not noticeably quicker than the league around them. Interestingly, actually, the biggest difference is back in the early 80s when I expected them to play a bit more slowly. I expected them to, you know, they would have magic being magic, but then they didn't have Worthy yet. They were more running the half court around Kareem as kind of the foundation of like, right, we'll play Showtime, we'll run up and down, but then when we need to, we'll play half court, we'll feed you in the post and you get us a bucket because we need a bucket and you're guaranteed offense. That was my impression coming in. But actually, in the early 80s, the Lakers played quicker than the league. You know, if the league is playing at 100, 101 uh, pace, we're talking about 103, 104 from the LA Lakers. So they are noticeably quicker than the league around them. So, yeah, that was an interesting. I actually haven't had time since then. Since I read that, I was like, oh, I need to, um, I need to process this. I need to kind of feed this 
back into my preconceptions about this team. I need to do some more reading and see why that is. I mean, I think it comes down to our kind of misconceptions around Kareem. We see Kareem as this kind of bald old man with the Lakers in his 30s. And we think, oh, you know, he was kind of, he was the old man. He was the anchor of the team that kind of, he held them down. He solidified them, but he also stopped them from really running and gunning. And that's what unlocked the team later on. It's really not the case. The team runned and gunned. Is that a word? I don't know. It ran and ganned. It runded and gunded. It it did something in the early 80s. And as we get into the mid to late 80s, the Lakers team starts to fall back in line with what most teams are doing in this period. In terms of pace, if I look at kind of the quality in 85, James Worthy is kind of, he kind of comes into the league almost fully formed. He takes shape, I think. He really hits his peak in about 86. For 85, he is basically on top of his game as a player. Kareem has fallen off, obviously. I think by 85, Kareem, to call him even like an all-NBA level player, in 1985 as a stretch. He has a wonderful final series against the uh, Boston Celtics. Kareem, in the regular season, though, he is is fully old man. By by about 82, 83, I think he's actually faded more than most people realise. By 84, he isn't an all-NBA player, in my opinion. By, you know, he holds on to that position, I think, through this later 80s I think even by 87 you could make an argument that he is still all NBA quality I probably wouldn't go that far I mean all all all-star quality not all NBA quality I probably wouldn't go that far but certainly in 86 85 he's still an all-star level player but he is now he is old man Kareem he is not the Kareem of the last episode the Milwaukee Bucks where I'm talking about this graceful generational talent that we've never seen anything like that is kind of the seven foot two basketball player like he is seven foot two but he is built like someone who's like six foot four six foot five and he's incredibly graceful he is still all of those things in 1985 he is still a good player but he does not have the explosion he is an old man now luckily This is really, I think, the year when Magic takes the leap into a real, real MVP quality player in about 85. I think he creeps up there. One thing I was shocked at looking at Magic's career is how long it kind of takes him, because we always have this idea he comes into the league fully formed in 80. He has that incredible finals performance, and from there it's all roses. But actually those years from like, 81 till about 84 he's improving he's constantly improving but they're not you know mvp years he has fluffs the tragic johnson finals you know he has these mistakes he has off series and the team itself has some poor showings in 81 they're not a very good team in 1981 they really they really what's uh screw the pooch in that playoff series, whereas they get knocked out in the first round 
after jumping down from being a quality 60-win team down to a a 54-win team. And even that 54 wins flatters them for how good they actually are. And they get knocked out by the Houston Rockets, who make the finals, who are not a good team. That Houston Rockets team with Moses Malone that makes the finals and loses to Larry Bird is not a good team. It's one of the weakest finals teams of all time, certainly going back to the 1950s where you had a lot of weak teams making the finals because there weren't a lot of great teams to begin with. But yeah, the, the LA Lakers are really carried by Kareem in those early years. It's not the magic that we come to know and love, but by 85, it is. By 85, we're talking about MVP, magic fucking Johnson for the next, you know, five years through until like, until probably about 91, actually, you know, by 91, he's still playing at this level, this true all-time MVP quality level. So eighth place, 1985 LA Lakers, 99th percentile offensively of all time, 80th percentile defensively, not great defensive team, incredible offensive team, overall 98th percentile plus 7.5 differential, 22nd best team ever, monster team. Seventh on the list, the 1998 Chicago Bulls, the last fucking dance. Regular season, offensive percentile, 78%. What even is that from Jordan? 78th percentile in the regular season on offense. That is a dogged, dogged team for a Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls team. Defensively, 94th percentile, overall 96th percentile. So that defense really saves them in the regular season. But it's it's not great. That team was on its last legs. I mean, you know, I'm sure like me, you binged the last dance. You were loving it like I was. But you could tell watching that that you're watching an old man team. Then the final plus minus data... Offensively, 92nd percentile. Defensively, 97th percentile. Overall, 98th percentile ever. A plus 7.7 and the 19th best team of all time. So I'm talking about this team, right? Like it's some dogged, terrible, you know, just just about drags themselves to the title team. And it is the 19th best team of all time. That is the type of level we're looking at with these Chicago Bulls teams. And that is why there is so much redundancy when we're talking about this, because we are talking about this as the second to worst best championship team Michael Jordan ever had. And I have to talk about it like it's what I having to look at the weaknesses of this team because the strengths of this team are so obvious. It's one of the great defensive teams ever. 97th percentile defensively incredible offensively really being dragged by Jordan. I think actually in some ways the finals, I think especially is kind of this kind of masterclass from Jordan when he is this old man, he is no longer Michael Jeffrey Jordan, half man, half amazing. Sorry, Vince, but you know, if, Jordan wants that title, it's his, because he is he is Air Jordan. He is, you know, God in basketball shoes. He is Black Jesus. 
in by ninety eight, he's he ain't that no more. He is still the best player in the league, and he still knows how to win. He will score thirty eight points while grabbing four rebounds and two assists, and he will shoot the last shot to win them the game. That is what really impresses me about nineteen ninety eight Michael Jordan. That while everything else drops, he kind of he solidifies what he can do best to win. And that is, I can still score at a good level. I can still score at a high, high level in some situations. And I'm going to just ride that. If I need to score 45, I'm going to score 45. If I need to score 50, I'm going to score 50 and not pass the ball. But I'm going to, I'm doing that to help us win. Unlike maybe the impression someone like Kobe got where you're talking about Kobe Bryant just doesn't want to pass. Jordan by 98, I mean, Pippen is, he's running on gas by 1998. Pippen is not the player he was for the rest of this run. He's injured for some of the season. I mean, if you saw the last dance, you know, he loses like half the season almost to injury. And he kind of drops out of what I would call kind of not MVP level, but Scotty for most of the 90s played above what we would consider all NBA level, in my opinion. Scotty often was, I mean, and you think in 1994, Scotty is in the MVP discussion. That is not something you can say about most other second fiddles. Dennis Rodman is still a very, very good defensive player. This team is still very good. Kukoc is still, even though he barely featured in the last dance, if you saw it, he's still a very good player. Ron Harper is a good player in 1998. They are still providing a lot of value. Like the team made it made it feel like it's Jordan against the world. It's not still. These teams are always built on this foundation of amazing coaching in Phil Jackson and Tex Winter, an amazing franchise around the teams Jerry Krause built. Shout out, Krause. You look at these teams, they go three, four, five deep in quality every year. And that's why this team can be the second worst championship team Jordan was ever on and still be the 19th best team of all time because they are a juggernaut. They are built like no other team in history. And again, to repeat those, Final plus minus data, offensive percentile, 92nd percentile ever, defensively, 97th percentile ever, overall, 98th percentile ever, plus minus of plus 7.7, the 19th best team of all time. The 1998 Chicago Bulls come seventh. And sixth, about to reach the top five and... This is actually, when I was first planning this out, I thought, right, I'll do top five and I'll add the sixth in as an honorable mention. Problem is, as you'll see, we have reached sixth. We haven't mentioned four Chicago Bulls teams. So I had to go to top 10 because otherwise it would just be talking about the Chicago Bulls. With that being said, number six, the 1987 LA Lakers peak peak showtime lakers this team is one of 
the greatest teams of all time offensively. They are, I'm just going to tell you now because it's quite exciting, they are the fifth best offense of all time in my plus minus book. Remember I said about the 85 Lakers that, you know, they go from about a plus six in the regular season offensively to a plus 10 in the playoffs. This team goes from a plus seven to a plus 11 regular season to playoffs. Let's have a look how that looks in the percentiles. Regular season, they are 98th percentile offensively. Defensively, they are 73rd percentile, maintaining that form as, in this company, not a great defensive team. Overall, 98th percentile ever, though. This is Showtime's final form. This is, you know, Kareem is now, as I said earlier, he's not even an all-star in my book. But this team is absolutely wiping the floor offensively. This team is, it's not, again, the pace is, you know, a, a possession more every game. It's not much. But when when I look at the final plus minus data, we're talking 99th percentile offensively, obviously the fifth best offense of all time, defensively, 79th percentile. So they bump it up a bit. Again, we're talking about 79th percentile ever. It's very good. Doesn't really cut the mustard in this company, but their offense is so good. They still end up in the 99th percentile ever, a plus eight differential and the 15th best team of all time. And this is really as well. This is Magic's final form. It's Magic's greatest season. This is Magic's. Remember the last episode I was talking about 64 is kind of Bill Russell's magnum opus. 67 is Wilt's. 73 is Walt Fraser's. 87 is Magic Johnson's magnum opus. He is all-time, all-time level good in 1987. Easily the best player in the league, in my opinion. He has, in 87, I think, if not the greatest finals performance by a point guard, it is certainly in the top two greatest finals performances by a point guard in history. And you think James Worthy is playing at an all-NBA level in 87. I think he's not the player he was in 86, where I think he is at his true peak. But 87 is still prime James Worthy. And he plays at that level till about 89 when the wheels start to fall off for this team, maybe 90 when the wheels start to fall off. But James Worthy is his peak. And one thing that, you know, really stuck out to me from James Worthy, watching highlights of the 87 Lakers, James Worthy is lightning fast, like on the break. Like, I don't think, I think a lot of them, the mythos around this 87 team, it comes down to, the fact Magic's passing is so good. Greatest passer of all time. Absolutely no question. If anyone tells you differently, or if you think differently, please come to me. I will try my best to show you that there really isn't much of a debate here that Magic Johnson is the greatest playmaker, passer of all time. But James Worthy is so quick. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that when the... the um notion of Showtime as this transition fast break team is just because they scored a lot. If they got a steal off you, if they got a rebound and could go the other way quickly with an outlet pass or something, 
they would score and they would score very often using that. Like you think they have guys like they have the, all these specialists. They have Byron Scott, who is a great shooter. They have Michael Cooper, who is an incredible defensive player. Michael Cooper is a defensive player of the year player during this run. I don't think he is that level. Again, like Rodman, I question if anyone playing his position in the 80s and 90s could ever have the value a defensive player of the year should have, especially when you think guys like Hakeem are in the league. Like Hakeem should be the eight, nine, ten-time defensive player of the year. That's just a fact. But Michael Cooper is still an all-defensive level player. They have AC Green. They have Kurt Rambus. Shout out Kurt Rambus. They have the original Wes Matthews. Son is currently playing in the league. The original Thompson, Michael Thompson. So do they have any more, actually? Guys, I think that's it in terms of current player dads. Byron Scott they have, who is a very nice secondary player, secondary kind of guard, shooter, next to Magic, running things in the point. But they are, as I said, they are the final form of the Showtime Lakers. They are a team built around what does Magic do best. And Magic, I think, is a very interesting point because by this point, I think they've really learned how to use Magic. What I mean by that is that they started him in his career as this kind of shooting guard next to Norm Nixon. They would kind of use him a bit bigger and it never really worked because Magic is obviously, if we were playing in today's game, Magic, you would be saying, right, you are the point forward, you are the point center, you are the primary ball handler in that kind of whatever the hell you want to call Jokic on offense or Ben Simmons on offense, that is what Magic Johnson would be in today's game. And I think they finally realized that towards the later half of the 1980s, maybe by like 84, 85, 86, they began to realize, right, we want this guy to have the ball in the hands every fucking possession going down the floor. But also he's six foot nine. He's not a good defender. He doesn't have great foot speed on defense. He can't be a defender and they start to stick him on power forwards, small forwards, power forwards on defense. So he becomes a real kind of point forward in that sense that in the traditional sense that you are the position you guard, Magic Johnson is a power forward. He guards forwards because he can guard forwards. He's 6'9", he's big, he's got good hands. He can't guard guys out on the perimeter, obviously. I mean... In the finals against the Pistons, Isaiah ate him for lunch. Like, you get a switch, Isaiah, Magic Johnson, it's good night. Isaiah, especially in that era, with the ball handling around them, Isaiah's ball handling was so far ahead of anyone else's at the time. And that kind of, and really precipitated this huge explosion of ball handling. But Magic couldn't stay in front of those guys. And I think for too long, they tried to play him as this kind of off guard, this kind of secondary role around guys like Norm Nixon, around, you know, Jamal Wilkes, who was more of a a forward, but had some ball handling duties. They kind of wasted the first few years. And I think that might have been part of what stunted his development 
in those first few years because he is still developing. He is still all NBA, MVP level player through the early part of the 80s. But you get to 87 and suddenly he just explodes. He is now the primary option on offense. He is he is crushing everyone in 87. There is, it is Magic Johnson's world and the rest of us are living in it. And again, those numbers, final plus minus data, 99th percentile ever. Defensively, 79th percentile ever. Overall, 99th percentile ever. A plus 8.0, 15th best team of all time. Number five, the 1997 Chicago Bulls. Regular season offense, 99th percentile. Regular season defense, 90th percentile. Overall, 99th percentile. Final offense, 96th percentile. Defensively, 96th percentile. Real balanced team there. Final overall, 99th percentile ever. All these teams now are going to be 99th percentile ever. Now we're getting into the real, real cream of the crop. Now we are like, I mean, the LA Lakers were the 15th best team ever. Obviously, all these five teams are going to be better than that. So be ready. Plus 8.3, plus minus, 12th best team ever, this team. And actually, they just miss out defensively. 52nd best team of all time. Offensively, 46th best team of all time. They come very close to being top 50 in both offense and defense ever. And, I mean, what can you really say about this team other than it's the 1998 Bulls, but they're a year younger? But the problem is, though, like I said, at the, the 1993 Bulls, we get this obvious thing where the first title teams, the 91, the 96 teams, these teams are riding the high of we are going to win the title. We are the best team. We have Michael Jordan or Michael Jordan's come back from playing baseball and he's crushed it at the Space Jam set against everyone and he's going to win the championship again, show everyone why he's the best. And then we have this season in 92 and 97 where they're still riding high off these championships and they still have enough left in the gas to do that all over again we see the 97 bulls they take their foot off the gas and fall to the 12th best team of all time level that's the type of team we're dealing with they have scotty pippen who is still all nba top 10 level player Tony Kukoc, who is one of the great sixth men of all time, giving you real all-star value coming off the bench. Steve Kerr is giving a huge amount of value as a spot-up shooter, as the greatest shooter percentage-wise of all time. And Dennis Rodman is still crazy Dennis Rodman playing out of his skin. He hasn't totally broken down yet, although he is not the player that he is in these early years, obviously he's not the same player that he was in the Detroit Piston years. At this point, I still think he's an all defensive player. I don't know if he's an all defensive first team player by this point, honestly, I'm sure reputation carried him through and that kind of made more people afraid of him 
he's certainly giving them all-star value. Certainly giving them all-star value. And I actually think offensively, he's quite underrated as a passer. I mean, I don't know if you saw in the last dance, but some of his extra passing really pops out to me. The kind of the extra, when he has a layup and he has still has someone on him and he has the wherewithal to dump it off to the side or pass it back or into the corner to someone with a better shot. That speaks to the intelligence that Dennis Rodman has. And I think that was a key part in giving this team the buoyancy to go forward with an aging Jordan and an aging Pippen, who are still, as I say, Pippen is still somewhere in the top 10 players in the league range. Jordan is still playing at an all-time level. I think he slips down to earth. Really, 1998 is when he slips down to just being an MVP-level player. Obviously, I have that in quotation marks, just being an MVP-level player. He's still at a better level than most players could ever dream of, but he's a low, low level compared to what Michael Jordan, the Michael Jordan we think of from the turn of the 90s when he's really at his peak. And you can see here, yeah, why I didn't do a top five, why I didn't really deep dive into a top five, because this is the fourth best Bulls team and their fifth which, if you can do quick maths, tells you there is only one team that isn't a Chicago Bull that's left. We're going to get into that right now. That is number four, the 1986 Boston Celtics. I'm sure you expected this team was going to come up at some point. They are the best non-Chicago Bulls team left in this whole experiment they are the best non-Michael Jordan-led team of this entire era, the 1986 Boston Celtics, or as Bill Simmons calls them, the best team of all time. I call them the best team of the 80s, for cert, for sure. They are the best team of the 80s, fourth best team of this era. Regular season offensive percentile, 93rd percentile, Regular season defense, 93rd percentile for an overall 98th percentile ever. Final ratings offensively, 98th percentile. Defensively, 96th percentile. Overall, 99th percentile, obviously, plus 8.6. Plus 8.6. So they would be... I mean, you think we're talking plus 8.3 for the 97 Chicago Bulls, plus 8 for the 87 Lakers. We are climbing incrementally towards a plus 10 rating. Plus 8.6 is absolutely monstrous. And when I look at side-by-side, offensively, they are the 31st best team of all time. Defensively, the 58th best team of all time. And this is going to be a real running theme as we move forward, as we get into the real greatest teams, that if you are not a top 50 or challenging that top 50 position in offense and defense all time, you don't have much hope. Unless you are like a top 10 offense ever, you don't have much hope climbing into the top 10, top 20 teams of all time because these guys, are they're just adding. I mean, you think like, 
the regular season plus minus data for Boston Celtics is the exact same. Their offensive relative offensive rating is plus 4.6, defensively plus 4.6. They actually maintain that in the um, playoffs. Their defense stays the same level. Their offense jumps way up, and that really drags them to this 98th percentile, 38th best offense of all time, top, top, top level, 31st best offense of all time. My mistake, I was looking at the 58. And yeah, I mean, if you haven't read anything about this Boston Celtics team, do yourself a favor because just watching it is poetry in motion. If you were a fan of the 2014 San Antonio Spurs, the beautiful game Spurs, please do yourself a favor and watch some games from the 1986 Boston Celtics because they are joy on a basketball floor. You have Kevin McHale, who at this point has reached maybe not, I'd say 87 was his peak, but 86, you are still talking about a clear, clear all-NBA level player. You're still, I would say, yeah, I put him all-NBA, not quite top 10, not quite top 10 MVP discussions, but clearly high, high level all-NBA player. You're talking about Robert Parrish, who at this point He's sliding off, I think, from his early 80s peak, but he's still clearly giving them all-star value. Um, Bill Walton, as sixth man, I mean, Brett's gone into on other pods about how he thinks Bill Walton's overrated here. I can get that. I can see that. I think it's more the magic, the mystique of having this guy who was the MVP, finals MVP, seen as this challenger to Bill Russell as like the greatest center ever who then had his career cut short by injuries and has this redemptive arc with this incredible team as their sixth man, as the old man off the bench. I can see why. Though he's not quite as much older than them as I thought. This team is very mature. I mean, Bird is 29, McHale's 28, Parrish is 32, Walton's 33, DJ, Dennis Johnson, wonderful, wonderful player. Everywhere Dennis Johnson goes, he wins. He and his stats that he puts up are mundane, to say the least. But there is a good reason why Larry Bird said that he's the greatest teammate he's ever had. Bear in mind, Larry Bird played with Kevin McHale and Bill Walton and Robert Parrish. And he said Dennis Johnson is the best teammate he's ever had. That should just tell you all you need to know about DJ and his quality. But yeah, they, these guys, they just run through the playoffs. And they run through certainly tough players, tough opposition. I mean, the Chicago Bulls in 86, obviously, when Jordan dropped 63 in the Garden, they're not a good team, but they have Michael Jordan. They can't really do anything against Michael Jordan, but they crush the team 3-0. They face off against Dominique and the Atlanta Hawks, who are a rising team, crush them 4-1. They face off against the Milwaukee Bucks in the conference finals. The Milwaukee Bucks in 1986, just, just to give you some extra context, they have just come off one of the 20 best regular seasons of all time. The 86 Milwaukee Bucks by plus minus data are to be precise. They are the 15th 
best regular season team of all time and Boston sweeps them. And it's not even particularly, it's not, there's nothing even gentlemanly about the sweep. The best they ever do is they lose a game by four points. Apart from that, they get blown out by 30, blown out by 10, blown out by 13. It's not even close. And this is a team which in the regular season was the 15th best of all time and was very close to this Boston Celtics team that was more like the 10th best team of all time in the regular season. But that just shows you regular seasons, they're not the be-all, end-all. I mean, we know that. We know that very clearly, but we do get lost quite often in this kind of, you know, this team. Like, we, we, we've we done it with the with the Milwaukee Bucks this year. This Milwaukee Bucks team that was the has the 11th best regular season of all time and they get a gentleman sweep in the conference semifinals. We fall for this all the time because it does play in. I mean, I've done some coefficiency data. It is like, it's a very close match. It's about 0.91, which is a very clear, very strong correlation between regular season and postseason impact, but it is not a perfect one-to-one ratio it's not and it's because of these type of teams where i'm sure at the time i haven't read any clippings newspapers articles from the time from 86 but i would be shocked if anyone chose the boston celtics to sweep this milwaukee bucks team that's how good this milwaukee bucks team were and that's part of the mystique of this Boston Celtics team, which would again then go on to beat the Houston Rockets in six because that Houston Rockets team had a young Hakeem who was unlike anything the league had seen since Bill Russell, really. It wasn't a particularly close six games. I mean, Boston won by what a combined, I think it was something like 37 points. Like across the six games, they won by a combined 37 points. So it wasn't a very close series. They had multiple games where they won by 10, 15 points. It just, they won. We really needed that 86 Lakers team to make it there because obviously you've seen that 85 and 87 Lakers team featured here. It's a travesty. We didn't get them in the finals again. So we could really have that four peat because obviously they met in 84, 85 and 87, but not 86 when the Celtics were at their absolute apex where bird was at his absolute, absolute peak as not just an MVP level player. He was an MVP level player for basically every season from like 1980 to 1988. Larry bird was an MVP level player, a top, top, top player. 86 was his absolute, absolute apex. And it's shame that we didn't get that. And they end up the fourth best team of this era. Again, those final plus minuses, offensively 98th percentile, defensively 96th percentile, overall 99th percentile ever, plus minus, plus 8.6. Not going to give away their final position because I'm pretty certain they're going to feature in the final final episode but you know they're better than the 12th best team ever that's a given number three the 1991 
Chicago Bulls. It's all Bulls from here on out, baby. It is all, all Chicago Bulls. This 91 team is, I think, my favorite team because it's the youngest. It's the one which breaks through. And offensively, it's also the best team. They are, just to tell you before I even get into it, this is the ninth best offense of all time. Defensively, they're a bit below that because um, Jordan isn't as good a defender as you think he is. Michael Jordan is a very good defender. He's an all-defensive level player. Never should have won Defensive Player of the Year. Again, for the third time I'm saying this, these guys, Rodman, Michael Cooper, Michael Jordan, they won Defensive Player of the Year when Hakeem Olajuwon was playing in the NBA. Just think about that. Hakeem fucking Olajuwon was playing in the NBA and he didn't win Defensive Player of, of the Year over some of these guys. Absolutely ridiculous. The 1991 Bulls, regular season, 98th percentile offensively, 80th percentile defensively, overall 98th percentile regular season. Final plus minus data, obviously 99th percentile offensively, defensively 89th percentile. Bit of a step down, see? Because the regular season numbers, they weren't incredible. 89th percentile. It's better than, you know, what the Lakers were doing in Showtime. It's really nothing compared to what later Bulls teams would do and what most other teams in this kind of stratosphere of the greatest teams ever were putting up. It's way, way below them. But we are still talking about a plus 8.7 differential, plus 8.7. They just edge out the Boston Celtics that were plus 8.6. And you'll see the next team is actually very, very close to this as well. And I want to talk about them right now because number two on this list, the second best team of this era is the 1992 Chicago Bulls. So Chicago Bulls, they do so well in 91, they want to do it again and do it slightly better. So in 1992, their regular season offense is again 98th percentile ever, same as 91. Defensively, they jump from the 80th percentile to the 87th percentile. Overall, they jump from the 98th percentile to the 99th percentile. Offensively, they take a little step back. They go in the final plus minus data. They go from the 99th percentile down all the way down to the 98th percentile the 21st best offense ever, but they jump defensively from the 89th percentile up to the 94th percentile. That's quite a big jump percentile wise. Actually, when you look at all the plus minus data, they work out as well to a plus 8.7, the exact same rounded as the 1991 Chicago Bulls. I actually, to make sure what the difference was, I actually opened it up a bit more, added more decimal points. So the 1991 Chicago Bulls have a plus minus of plus 8.69. The 1992 Chicago Bulls have a plus minus of plus 8.71. So we are talking about two hundredths of a point per 100 possessions, splitting up these teams in everything they do for the entire season combined. They just 
these are basically this is basically a 24 month stretch where it's just one season it's just Michael Jordan absolutely destroying everything in his wake this is i think the 1991 finals performance from Jordan is if it's not the greatest finals performance it is the landmark finals performance it is the benchmark by which all other finals performances need to be held if you want to say so and so's just had the greatest finals performance of all time if you want to talk about Kawhi's finals performance or you want to talk about a LeBron performance or a Shaq performance or a KD or Duncan or Dirk whoever the hell you want to talk about compare it to the 1991 Michael Jordan finals performance see how it stacks up because 99 times out of 100 you're going to see a gulf in quality and it's going to tell you just how great that is and how hard it is to say some such and such just part of the best fans performance ever because there are so many great ones and michael jordan's 1991 might just be the best 1992 is probably a top 10 one as well and by that point i think pippin has kind of taken a bit more of a jump to his real mid-90s peak and i think that's really boosting the defense along with horace grant who if you haven't heard my Jordan versus LeBron pod, go listen to that, please. If you like this, you'll love that one. In that one, in 1992, in a rudimentary blend I made of plus minus data, Horace Grant worked out as the uh, slight sub All-NBA. I mean, he worked out All-NBA. I don't think he's quite that good, but I would buy, if you told me, 1992 Horace Grant was the 20th best player in the league. I'd probably agree with you. I think he is in that ballpark range. 20th, 15th, 20th, 25th best player in the league. Certainly how he connects this team in 91-92. He is in that range. Scottie Pippen, you are talking about a top 10 player in the league for sure. Obviously, Michael Jordan, if he's not number one, player in the league at the time he's the number one player of all time in the early 90s so this team is it's cooking with gas to put it mildly i mean i've I've spoken at length about these teams in the jordan pod so how much more do i really need to say you know they have phil jackson they have tex winter they have horace they have jordan they have scotty they have paxson they have armstrong all these players that when you say some of them individually like BJ and Paxson you think yeah so what you put them on that team and you think they're spacing for Michael Jordan they are providing that floor spacing presence for Michael Jordan think how additive that is to a team's skill level to a team's floor and to a team's ceiling like imagine putting four shooters around Michael Jordan who stays in front of him, especially when you're playing one-on-one defense. And that was really the cheat code these teams had because they just destroyed the league this entire run. And it all started in that 1991 and then 1992 season. And obviously they played so well. They, to fall from that, from what they were all the way, all the way down to the 1993 season. What a, what a disaster. But those are, I wanted to talk about them together because they're back-to-back seasons. 91 and 92 are the third and second best 
seasons of this era, respectively. And by this point, I'm sure you can guess these are top 10 seasons of all time. They're actually right next to each other in the top 10. So once we get to that final one, I'll probably talk about them together again for the third time on this whole series. We'll be talking about Michael Jordan championship teams. I promise you, I don't want to make this into a Michael Jordan series. Michael Jordan just demands it. It's just the way it is. Anyway, we've been here for long enough. Let's get into the number one team of all time. I'm sure you've guessed what it is by now. The number one team of the era starting 1977, ending 1998, were the 1996 Chicago Bulls. The team so often called the greatest team of all time, and I can tell you they are certainly in that discussion here. Most certainly. Regular season, we are talking about the 99th percentile offensively, 95th percentile defensively, 99th percentile overall. They are, in regular season terms, the second greatest regular season of all time in 1996, second only to those 1971 um, Milwaukee Bucks that we spoke about that came first last episode. These te- this one comes second, but they're, they're, they are above that Milwaukee Bucks team, I have to tell you, because in the playoffs, they absolutely, they, they are the most balanced team. Maybe in terms of what they are, they are the most balanced team ever. Final ratings, offensively, 98th percentile ever. Defensively, 98th percentile ever. Overall, 99th percentile ever, plus 9.9. I just want to put that in perspective, right? I'm going to read you through what 10 to 1 were. So 10th place, the 93 Chicago Bulls, plus 7.1. Ninth were the 96 Utah Jazz at plus 7.2. Eighth were the 1985 LA Lakers at plus 7.5. Seventh were the 1998 Chicago Bulls at plus 7.7. Sixth, the 1987 LA Lakers plus 8. Fifth, the 1997 Chicago Bulls plus 8.3. Fourth, the 1986 Boston Celtics plus 8.6. Third and second, the 1991 and 1992 Chicago Bulls at plus 8.7. The 1996 Chicago Bulls plus 9.9. The difference between them and second is bigger than the difference between second and seventh, eighth. That is how big the gap is. This team is... 25th all-time in offense and 25th all-time in defense. Not only are they the only team that finished top 25 in both, they're the only team that finished top 30 or top 35 in both. That is how balanced and how good this team is. The 1996 Chicago Bulls. I mean, do you, are you surprised that they came 
number one. They are, they were until maybe recently universally regarded as the greatest team ever. Interestingly, that series, actually the 1996 finals might be the worst finals Jordan never played. I mean, they absolutely ran, ran through the Eastern Conference. They crushed the Heat, crushed the Knicks, crushed the Magic that they lost to in 95. And then the Sonics gave them a little bit of, a little bit of trouble. I think mostly Jordan just had an off, off series in terms of, you know, for Michael Jordan. But, I mean, this is the team where you have, you know, everyone's come together for the new run. Jordan is back. Jordan is playing Michael Jordan level still. He is, he's never the player he was back in the first three-peat again. He is not that player. Don't let anyone ever tell you differently. Michael Jordan, when he came back, never reached the same heights he did. But in 96, 97, and 98, he was still easily the best player in the league. No questions. But they had Pippin still as an all-NBA to low top 10 player level. Tony Kukoc was in being one of the first great European imports, one of the great sixth men of all time. Luke Longley clogging the lane, as Steve Kerr would say. Steve Kerr on that team, shooting the lights out, shooting 51.5% on threes. Obviously, we're talking the shorter line here, I think, was still until 97. So it's more like a 22-foot long two. and But he's still, he's shooting 51% on those and 93% from the foul line. I mean, think what Steve Kerr could get played, paid in 2020. Ron Harper coming in, playing nicely connective tissue next to Michael Jordan in the backcourt. And Dennis Rodman revived after a few years going off the rails where some people say those years actually like the Spurs years, some of those years were his best in terms of how good he actually was. Don't totally disagree with that. But I think certainly by 95, he had gone off the rails a little bit, maybe like 93, 94, 95. I think he had gone off the rails a little bit from his peak in 91, 92, but then you get into 96, I think he captures it again in a lot of ways. I don't think he is the all-time defender that some people make him out to be. I think when you combine Jordan, Pippin, and Rodman, and then guys like Ron Harper and then Luke Longley behind them, just kind of just do your job, Luke. Honestly, let everyone else handle the tough work. You see, they play so well, they just smother these teams. And that's really what it comes down to. It comes down to the 1996 Chicago Bulls absolutely smother you on both ends because between Jordan and Kukoc and Scotty and Kerr, they have far too much firepower for any team of that era. And on defense between Scotty and Jordan and Rodman and Ron Harper, they have too much. They just smother you on that end as well. It's just, it's it's over. That team is, I mean, how much do I really need to say, honestly, about the 1996 Chicago Bulls? Apart from to tell you, yeah, 9.9 plus minus. I can, I can certainly tell you they are going to be in the top five. I can, I can, I'll tell you, they're going to be in the top three. 
un- undoubtedly greatest teams ever when this is all said and done. The one thing I have that I wanted to say about this whole era, by the time Jordan has come back, I think certainly, and as we go through this 96, 97, 98, 99 period, even the turn into the 2000s, the bottom really comes out of the NBA because of a series of very weak drafts from from about 88 until 94, 95. There aren't really any strong draft classes coming through. I mean, you still have great players coming through, obviously, Gary Payton, you know, Shaq, obviously, Chris Webber, Penny Hardaway, Jason Kidd, Grant Hill, et cetera, et cetera. There are good players. There are not good draft classes coming through. And that really you see the slump in top level quality of players pan out towards the late 90s, early 2000s, when those players that came out in that dra- those draft classes should be hitting their peak and taking the mantle of the best players in the league. They don't. It falls to the next wave, the Kevin Garnett from 95, the Sheed Wallace in 95, then, you know, the 1996 lauded draft class, maybe the best of all time in 96, probably still 84, but 96 is up there. 97, obviously, you have Duncan, uh, McGrady, 1998, you have what Dirk, Paul Pierce, Vince Carter. 99, you have about 10 all-star players like Manu and Elton Brand and like Rip Hamilton. Like 99 just has quality, quality players all up and down the board. Even though they don't have an all-star and kind of an MVP level player, I think 99 might be the most interesting draft class. Anyway, we're getting off topic. The point is the bottom falls out of the league at this time and that hurts some of these Chicago Bulls teams and some of these teams when I try to put them into a bigger historical context, I have to drag them down a bit because they were beating up on some very weak opposition. The league expanded in the 90s because of all the success it was having and it allowed these kind of these weak weak teams like um you know the what are now the pelicans were the hornets at the time these type of teams that came in what like the raptors the grizzlies these teams that came in and they sucked they were awful and they really inflated remember in the first episode we were talking about this srs drag concept this is another period like the early 70s where we get this slight inflation on the top end teams because they were beating up such weak opposition and it wasn't as hard for them to just crush them every year and inflate their stats compared to their historical neighbors. Regardless of that, this Chicago Bulls team, even when I tried to do that, they are head and shoulders above basically any other team in NBA history. Again, those numbers, final plus minus data, plus 9.9, 25th best offense ever, 25th best defense ever, 99th percentile overall. Maybe they're going to be the greatest team ever. They are certainly Michael Jordan's greatest team. They are certainly the best team of the 90s, the best team of this era, the best team we've looked at so far. And... That's the episode. Hope you enjoyed it. That one was a bit longer because Jordan forced me to expand what I was going to say. 
I actually wanted to get this one under an hour, but you know, Michael Jordan does that. Anyway, that's by numbers basketball. Come hang out with us in the Facebook group, overstated NBA. Listen to other episodes of the podcast. We have a great one coming out before this where we had some great analysis of Celtics Heat Game 3, which actually by the time this comes out, that won't be totally relevant. doesn't matter. Go listen to it anyway. It was some good stuff, and the series isn't over yet, and some of the stuff we talked about in that is still going to be relevant going into whatever happens in Game 4 and Game 5. See you later.